When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast, where we interview violinists from around the world discussing practice tips, career advice, and other violin-related news. My name is Eric, and I'm the host of The Violin Podcast, and I want to thank you for joining us on this week's episode. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to hit the subscribe button, hit the bell notification so that you get notified for when new Violin Podcast episodes come out. It really helps us out to create amazing content for you. We have a great guest for you this week, but before we get to this week's guest, I just want to pull your attention to the Violin Podcast website. We have a brand new website, violinpodcast.com, where you could also listen to previous episodes of the Violin Podcast, and also if you're a visual person like me, you could also visit our YouTube channel, and I'm going to leave all those links in the podcast show notes if you want to take a look at some of those video interviews that i'm doing because it's really cool to see the the guests faces while they're answering all these questions and talking about their life as musicians and the reason for this is we want to create an amazing community around the violin podcast so if you have some suggestions for guests or if there are specific topics you want to talk about visit the violinpodcast.com website click on the contact form and that way you can get in touch with us for any specific violin-related content or ideas to make the show better. Let's get into the content of today's episode. My guest today is the founder of the McDuffie Center for Strings in Georgia, and he will be soloing with the Brahms Violin Concerto alongside the Czech National Symphony at Carnegie Hall and the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. Today, we're having an excellent conversation about his violin, about the Brahms Violin Concerto, how he started the McDuffie Center for Strings, and so much more. Please let me welcome Robert McDuffie. Friends, I have Robert McDuffie, who will be soloing with the Czech National Symphony at Carnegie Hall really soon. And actually, you can grab tickets online at carnegiehall.org. And I have the pleasure of speaking with him today, who is a soloist for that cycle. Robert, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and I love to just dive right in if you don't mind. And sure, you're going to be performing the Brahms Violin Concerto. Is that right? That's correct. So, what was that your decision to perform the Brahms? Was that uh, the Czech National Symphony reached out to you, and they had you? They 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 just had this image of like you playing Brahms Violin Concerto. How how was that conversation started, and how this collaboration began? It was my idea. Um, I have a um, a nice, healthy relationship with my manager. Um, he's, he's been my partner, uh, uh, for my career for well over 20 years, Tim Fox. And, uh, we're more partners than I think agent, uh, artist relationship. Uh, it's a project oriented, uh, relationship. We've, uh, we've done a lot of fun things together, uh, over the years, including a Philip Glass, uh, commission um, concerto that he that he wrote for me, uh, touring with uh, Mike Mills from the rock band REM uh, concerto that he wrote for me, uh, and some and some really good tours with different European orchestras as well, uh, with repertoire that I wanted to pursue. The Brahms is a piece that I never really played well. I I learned it when I was young, and didn't I, I don't think I put in the investment that was required, and so I kind of put it on the shelf. And, um, and it was the pandemic that gave me the opportunity to revisit it. And, um, and I spent most of the pandemic in Italy, um, basically re, uh, visiting this, this masterpiece and, and getting to know it, um, better and, um, trying to, uh, trying to discover, um, you know, hidden secrets and, um, it's, it's been a really good, it's been a really good experience and, but, uh, were it not for the pandemic, I don't think I would have been able to invest that time into the piece. So, uh, I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to be able to put my own stamp on it. And I just, uh, called Tim. I said, Hey, <laughs> get an orchestra and, <laughs> and let's do it. And, 
and that's what happened. So we we have the we have the checks, and they're coming over here, and we have about seven shows. And it was it's it's really it's it's more of an existential thing for me. I wanted to play it while I'm still playing well, and um, so yeah, it was it was um, it, it was a conversation with Tim, and and he got the orchestra, and and um, and we have some nice dates. May I just say, let's let's go back to what you said about practicing during the pandemic. I feel like everyone who's listening to the Violin Podcast right now, we're like, I'm going to learn a couple of Paganini Caprices, maybe some couple of roads, maybe a new concerto. And then after month one, it just like totally vanished all those goals. And you're one of the few people that I have talked to that actually committed to, you know, revisiting a piece. I mean, luckily you have... Um, You've learned the piece prior to the pandemic, so it's just like a revisitation. But what are some what are some challenges for you back then with Brahms, and what are some of the challenges with you now as we are approaching this concert cycle with the symphony? I think just the typical challenges: trying to um, first of all memorize it and play it uh, as much in tune as I can, and um, and tape myself constantly listening for shifts and expressive intonation that's maybe too expressive, you know, things like that. And, um, no, it was just good work. I mean, I had so much time and I just spent hours a day on it. Um, and while it was familiar, obviously, and in my, in my inner ear, it had been quite, quite a while since, um, since I'd worked on it. And I also felt, you know, pandemic, it was tough on so many of us. And, but, I was I was grateful to be 63 and not 23. I mean, I I didn't. I mean, I I felt that um, that I had that space um, to to just you know try to try to be you know try to be happy during. I was in a beautiful I was in a beautiful city. I was in Rome, and um, and 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 I had the I had the time to. Um, to love Rome even more. I'm there every year with a music festival that I started about 20 years ago. Um, so, so yeah, it was basically, uh, it was basics for several months and, uh, and then, and then the interpretation kind of kicked in. Yeah. And of course we'll talk about practice tips later because you are the, the founder of the McDuffie center for the, uh, for the strings, and, the strings uh, right. in, in Georgia, but we'll get to that in a moment because I will, because to me, when I was reading about you, you are very much have a mon- entrepreneurial mindset, and you know you you started this McDuffie Center for Strings. You are actively, you're proactive in making opportunities for yourself with the with the Brahms and the Czech National Symphony, and you also have this wonderful partnership with your manager, and and maybe we'll talk about the whole music business side in a moment. But I want to dive into the violin that you're playing on. Because okay. it's it's a wonderful instrument that you're playing on, and I I want you to tell us on how you acquired it and what's it been like playing on this instrument for you. Well, I um, I'm sure many of your listeners uh, remember Rene Morel, the great luthier and craftsman who passed away uh, several years ago. He worked with Jacques Francais in New York. Uh, he was a uh, a dear friend, and he he uh, did all my adjustments and and um, and, and work on the violin when it was open and when it needed a new bass bar. And, um, but he kept telling me, he said, the only violin for you is a Del Jesu. That's the only violin for you. Everything else is, you have to play a Del Jesu. That's, that's who you are. You have to, and you know, it's just like, okay, stop. I, okay. I hear you. Um, and then some things were taking place uh, in my career. I was making several recordings and I was, I was playing some, I guess some high profile dates and, and I guess I, I, I realized, Oh my gosh, maybe I, I should start looking. I was playing, um, um, uh, 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 a Galliano violin. Uh, that was, that was, um, it was loud. I don't think it had much nuance to it, but anyway, it, it served me very well. And, um, so when one puts out word, in the violin business that you're looking for Del Jesu, uh, whoever has one will descend upon the town you're living in and, uh, and will treat you like uh, royalty. And there were three uh, Del Jesus available for sale at that time. 
One was the Vinyowski uh, that Bynum and Fushi had. The other was the fountain that Rene was selling himself. And the other was the Ladenburg uh, that was owned by Dietmar Machold. Um, of course, Rene, I think deep down wanted me to, to buy the fountain. That was uh, those, the violins back then were running uh, between three and $4 million back in the, um, back in the late nineties. And um, so I didn't, I didn't think about money first. I just wanted to, I just, I just wanted to find the, the violin. So we had all three violins in one place here in New York with the dealers uh, and the, the, the um, Machold actually owned his violin. The other two were working on consignment and uh, Joshua Bell came and helped me uh, play the violins. He brought his, uh, I think he had a Strat at the time. I had the uh, Galliano. We played all the violins and, um, and Renee, it was Renee who came up to me and, and said, I would love more than anything to sell you the fountain, but the violin for you is the Ladenberg. That's the violin for you. And um, it just reinforced my my friendship um, and his own honesty, which you don't always find um, in the um, you know the dark corners of <laughs> the violin dealership world. Um, and it just meant a lot to me, and I obviously felt very comfortable playing it. So. That was the violin, and and I was really fortunate because Dietmar um, didn't have to give the violin back to the owner. He owned it already, and he had just opened up a New York shop and wanted uh, wanted an American soloist to play his his uh, his violin. Um, but that but that's when the hard part started. I I, I thought that it was going to be a slam dunk to find the money. Uh, though I've lived in New York for many many years, I'm I'm. I have a lot of fans in Georgia, I guess, you know, so I wanted to tap into that. We're so proud of you, Bobby thing. And I remember going to uh, the head of a, a bank in Atlanta and uh, thought that it would just be so easy just to say, could you please uh, just buy this violin so I can promote your bank around the world? And I got the answer was, first of all, why do you have to play a $3 million violin? Why can't you play a $1 million violin? And, uh, and that's when the sweating started and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm so out of my league. I just, um, I'm just in over my head. And, but the answer was, well, playing on a $1 million violin is like running with a pulled hamstring. I can't, uh, I can't do everything I want to do. And he said, well, that's a great analogy. And we're proud of you that you play in Hong Kong, but we don't care about Hong Kong. We, um, you know, we care about Georgia and, uh, and it just went on and, uh, that didn't work. And um, and there were several false starts until someone mentioned the idea of a limited partnership, which I didn't know um, anything about. And um, but at the end of the day, I'll try to uh, you know explain this uh, in a way that's 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 clear. We uh, we we found investors to buy shares in in the violin. Uh, the violin was priced at three point four million. Um, and we sold shares for a hundred thousand each. I played, uh, several private concerts for, for people that knew me and that were supportive of me. And at the end of the day, um, uh, I realized that people were not investing in a violin, but were investing in me and my career. And, um, and that, I think that human touch, uh, helped, uh, seal the deal. It was the hardest thing, uh, I've ever done in my career. Um, because with a, with a deal like this, it's, it's locked in, uh, funds. They can't take their money out. It's a 25 year lease. Um, I play the violin. I just extended it for another five years. So I'm going to be playing it for 30 years over the whole, over the long haul. Um, but, um, but that's what we have. We have 16 people who bought 34 shares and, um, and and we stay in touch and they're supportive and come to all the shows and um and yeah so that's and i know that some some others after reading about this have tried uh you know the same uh you know process it's it's just it's it's just difficult because it's a long term it's a long term um endeavor 
Yeah, so there are a lot of nuances that I'm noticing, especially um, there's a new company, I think, based out of Washington, D.C. called Strumenti, and they have this very similar idea where they purchase instruments and they're looking for people to invest in those instruments with however many shares like you suggested. And then, um, of course, in business, you want to have a return on investment, which means you want to you know, see the violin appreciate so that way all the shareholders can maximize on the returns naturally in business. But most importantly, what you're suggesting in this whole idea is that you're you're not just investing in the instrument, but you're investing in the person. I think that's very important in the world of business and also in the world of music, because if if robots were playing our instruments, if if, if a robot is playing a Galeana, it just wouldn't be the same. I, I personally think. And I think that's one of the uh, one of the correct. really important nuances that you have that human connection with your audience. I tell it to my students all the time that your people are there to see you. They're not there to see what you're playing on. Although it is important to 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 have a tool that can do what you want it to do, but in the end, it's about what kind of ideas are you presenting on stage to to your audience. Exactly. I mean, it's not uh, when people ask, well, can I tell the difference between your Del Jesu and a modern violin? I said, well, it, to me, it doesn't matter. I mean, what you what you see is and experience is, is, is a confident artist on stage. And um, and and I and, and I do feel I can run uh, full speed with this violin. You talked about the connection between you had with Renee and how even though he had a violin, he actually suggested you getting the other one. Can you describe the connection that you felt with that, the instrument that you're playing on this Guarneri, or sorry, yeah, the Del Jesu. Uh, can, you, can you describe the connection when you're playing on all of these instruments back at the time? Like what made this one stick out to you? All, all, all three felt great under the hmm. ear. I, um, and, they, uh, and, and they were not difficult to play. I could just dig in and but I needed his uh, reinforcement. That's why he was there, obviously. Um, and um, I just, I just, so many of us trusted him so much, including Perlman, who joked, you know, after Renee died, he said, "Well, I'm quitting. I'm quitting the violin because I don't have Renee anymore." Mm. Uh, we really, th- there were so many of us who depended on him. Uh, so it really was his, um, you know, his 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 almost absolutist um, reaction to the uh, to, to this particular violin. I did I did notice that the the I did notice the sweetness of the E string um, that was more Strad like than Del Jesu like. Of course, the G string certainly has the the grit and the power and and. Uh, almost a subwoofer feel to it. Um, but it was the sweetness up top that that struck me. Now, my question for you is, if you don't mind commenting on this, you're searching for violins, but were you searching for bows at the same time during this time? Or did you have a bow that you're completely really comfortable with <clears throat> and sold on and you just use that bow on all these instruments? I know. I play, I've played the same bow. It's a hill made by Albert Bishop and... 1939 I've played the the bow the bow worked beautifully with this violin and um, I've been playing I've been playing that bow for almost 40 40 years um, and I have a a, a de Cunha, which also works well on the violin but um no the bow is you know the bow, bows are gosh I mean that's just people have asked me you know what is it about what is it and I don't you know, I mean, I play golf, and I I use the analogy of a of, of a of a putter. You know, it's just it can be a seven dollar, you know, hand me down, and and it, if it works, it works. And um, that's you know, I'm I'm a I am not a connoisseur. I'm definitely a consumer, but um, I just know what what I needed and what felt right. And I didn't need to go look for another boat. Well, that's that's good for you. A lot of people spend a lot of times just searching for a decent quality bow that matches their instrument. I know we've had many violinists on the podcast who spend some time trying to do both at the same time. Like I know Angelo Zhang Yu from the Shanghai Quartet was talking about how he was saving all his money for this one bow. And they're like, okay, this bow was like a real a real game changer. And then he acquired 
um, a strad loan. And now he's able to like combine two peas in a pod. It's just, it just, just fits and it works really nicely. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own, their own journey. I mean, it's, um, I just, uh, yeah, I've always, I've always just felt so great with this stick. And, um, it's just a stick, and, right? It's all about you who who yeah. and who uh, masters that <laughs> this this Pernambuco piece of wood. Um, I want I want to dive into some of the recordings and the repertoire that you have played in the past. Like this, you know, the Brahms is, a, is you know was known to be one of the most difficult yet almost impossible concertos to have to to be played, and now most soloists around the world are playing this with symphonies. And you said you mentioned you. Um, you had recordings by Philip Glass, and that's more on the contemporary side. Do you lean towards uh, the more traditional repertoire or the contemporary, or you like to mix and match as as you go along? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I I guess my career got started because of my commitment to American music. My life changed at Juilliard when I won the competition. The competition there, and the required piece was the Barber Concerto. And this is when the barber was not known. I mean, there were only, I think there was only one recording out of it. And, um, and I, and I, you know, I was a cocky, I was concert master of the work. I was just so cocky and I was just playing nothing but, you know, the, the standards, uh, Tchaikovsky and, uh, Mendelssohn Brook, all those, but I wanted to win the competition. And somebody told me that the piece ended, you know, with great excitement. I said, good. I didn't even know it. I just wanted a lot of applause and, um, so I, I, I started learning it and I realized, oh my gosh, this is really special. I mean, it's, it's not that well written for the, for the violin, but it is, there's something really special about this, this piece. It, it seemed to be a genuine, a genuine attempt at, at, at beauty. And it's very American. It has, uh, an openness, you know, that, uh, kind of sense of hope and also nostalgia that just touched me and I kind of fell in love with the piece and I won the competition and a friend of Samuel Barber's, uh, another composer named David Diamond suggested that I go to Barber's home and, and play it for him. And, um, and that life, uh, that night changed my life. It was, um, you know, playing a masterpiece for the master. And, uh, after that night I realized that I was going to be, making a huge commitment to American music. So um, I was, uh, uh, I started out concentrating on the mid-century American, mid-20th century American music and knew these composers, Bernstein, Barber, William Schumann, um, and spent, uh, spent good time with them um, and just felt, I just felt more complete. I felt, I felt very American, proud of, proud to play American music. Um, but I've also played so many, so many Beethoven's, so many Brooks, so many Mendelssohn, so many Tchaikovsky's uh, along the way as well. But I'm proud that the um, that, that some people still consider me a, a, an American music champion because that's uh, that's that's a great honor. And um, yeah, so I, uh, later on in the career, I got to know uh, Philip pretty well, um, and John Adams recorded both of their uh, concertos. Uh, actually, I played several concerts with John Adams conducting, and um, and then and then I went to Philip Glass and told him that he was America's Vivaldi and that he had to write an American Four Seasons, mm-hmm. and uh, and he did. And I played that piece a hundred times, and I paired it a lot with the, you know, with the Vivaldi. So all of this, I think, just makes me a better player. You know, I mean, I just um, I I think my standards are. Uh, the, the standard repertoire that I play, I, th- I think I play better than I used to because of my experience with living composers. Um, it adds to some kind of freshness that, uh, that helps me succeed. So, so yeah, so Philip Glass and uh, the, the last commission that we worked on was with my childhood friend who ended up, ended up becoming a founding member of the rock band REM. And uh, so I went to him, I said, Hey, you want to write a concerto for violin and rock band and orchestra? He went, yeah. Why not? So why not? We've done that a lot. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, it's just it's just good to be, just to stay on your toes while playing music that you love. I think what's fascinating is working with living composers. 
I think that's just one of the great joys that I have had in the past couple of years. You know, my wife is a pianist and, you know, we, we, we met um, doing the, the traditional repertoire, like the Brahms second sonata and all, all those standards, Mozart, whatever. But then everybody has their own interpretation of how this music is supposed to sound. And then the, the moment you start working with the living composer, you have the source right in front of you. So if you have a question, is this supposed to be forte piano? Because it doesn't seem right. <laughs> it's like, and then yeah. sometimes, no, it's supposed to be there. I want it. And some composers, and maybe you can comment on this, some composers are very Beethoven as like, no, this forte piano needs to be there. No, it's like you have to do it. Or some people have some flexibility. Some composers have flexibility and they're like, yeah, you know what? Like, what do you think? And I want you to comment on that. Can you talk about your process when working with living composers throughout your career has this was it one directional has it been a collaborative approach this and um i also side note john adams chamber symphony i had to play that in college what a difficult third movement the roadrunner oh my gosh i don't know if you're familiar with it at all but that roadrunner and is a it's a beast and that was his music it's amazing his music, music. music very it's like not- the minimalists you know, minimalism at its finest. And, but anyways, yeah. Talk about that, uh, that collaborative approach with the composer. Well, it's funny. The, the, when I first met John Adams, he was conducting for me in Italy, but I wasn't playing his music. I was playing Bernstein's Serenade. Which is also another great piece. If you, if the audience has not heard of the Bernstein Serenade, it's fantastic, fantastic music. Yeah. That's, that's a major, it's, uh, it's, it's the name the title is misleading. It's a major violin concerto. Um, you think of serenade, you know, you think of a Dvorak serenade or Tchaikovsky serenade, you know, or, you know, the tulips. Um, the, I mean, it's, it's a major, major work. Um, but so I met John just as a, as a conductor, not as a, not as a composer, but I was learning his piece when we met because I was going to be recording it later. And, um, he is, to your point, he is he is very uh, detail oriented and doesn't miss a beat uh, with his music. He he knows what he wants and and uh, his accents are placed in, in the spots where he wanted them, and he expects them to be played. Um, Samuel Barber uh, was much more open. Uh, he he was he. He just felt if you can sing his music, then it's then it's going to work. And um, and he was he was much more generous, I think, uh, with uh, with letting me uh, do my own thing with his piece. Philip kind of the same way. Philip had one or two uh, suggestions about dynamics, I think. Um, But no, all all of that, all of that works well. I still. I, I guess I would, I, I, if I had a choice, I would, you know, I would prefer to be the one to, to have the final say on. on don't, how the most violinists would like to have the final say, but sometimes we don't have that luxury. <laughs> I know that for me, at least in my experience, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, um, uh, it, and, and usually, I mean, John knows what John Adams knows what he wants. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a great composer for a reason. I mean, he's, his violin concerto is just the hardest damn thing I've ever played. It's just, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's crazy hard. I do play his road movies a lot. And, uh, that's I just I actually just, I just put out a recording of that. And, uh, just, that was a great piece to, to learn and to, and to perform and to put on the shelf and to revisit. I was wondering if you can talk about the American classical style. Because to me, I think of Samuel Barber and I instantly think of like Eric Korngold Violin Concerto, D major. That's has this, in the beginning has this really wonderful open, as if you're this open, this openness, as you say. And, you know, for me, I imagine like the sun rising up on a plane in the Korngold Violin Concerto. And I, f- I feel that is very similar to the Barber. And I'm wondering if you can comment on some specific elements you notice in American music that you've noticed in your career by working with these composers. 
Well, I mean, the, I think the first batch of Americans that I championed, by the way, I'm, I'm glad to hear you speak about the corn gold. I love that piece. I never, I never learned it. And, uh, but I, but I teach it. So at least right. I have that connection with it. Uh, I love that piece. Um, you know, of those Hollywood composers, I, I went with Roja, um, and didn't didn't go with Korngold or Waxman. I went with I went with uh, I went with the Rosier by the Concerto. Um, so I I think there was more of a sense of openness and hope with the uh, with the early batch of composers that I was working with. It was just that style that that I that I loved. I mean, the William Schumann Concerto, which is unjustly neglected, um, is um, big boned, uh, confident. Um, and uh, brash, um, hard as hell, but the slow movement is um, is yearning and gorgeous and always, you know, curious and searching and um, yeah, that certainly that certainly spoke spoke to me not only as 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 an interpreter but as as a fellow American. Um, it's just the barber that got, it's just the barber that got to me. I mean, how, um, the reason that piece got to me so much is, is, is because he, it's so obvious he didn't really know how to write for the violin. I mean, these, these, uh, passages are so gnarly and, um, awkward in the, um, in the first movement. And of course the third movement he wrote because the, uh, the, um, the kid who first played it, um, decided it was the piece was too easy and um so he wrote a, a ridiculously hard uh third Barbara was like okay challenge accepted um, but i can those... make this harder for you and he did and the kid couldn't play it but he brought in oscar shumsky to prove that it could be played i think shumsky basically sight read it um that makes me pretty envious but um i i, I was not able to sight read that thing but the um it's it's the uh it's the warts and all of the of the of the first movement that gets to me with the barber uh concerto it's it is you know a little heavily orchestrated but he's but he's basically just vulnerable and uh, and that really struck me and um and he did tell me he said if you if, if you can't if you can't sing my music, it's not it's 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 not worth playing. Um, but with the composers, um, you know, later on, uh, composers like Paul Moravec, uh, there's so many. I don't want to leave anybody out um, that I've uh, worked with. Um, but I guess Philip Philip Glass started uh, speaking to me as well. I like a lot of Juilliard. Students back in the day, we loved making fun of Philip Glass's music and um, just didn't take it seriously. And and that was a big mistake on our part because uh, when the idea to came up to record his first concerto, um, I remember sitting on the floor with my wife having a glass of wine, listening to Get on Kramer's recording with the Vienna Philharmonic. And I went, holy, this piece is amazing. This is it's so manipulative, but in the, but in the greatest, you know, since the war, and it just totally seduced me. And I just couldn't wait to, you know, I couldn't wait to learn it. And that's when I met Philip uh, and I went and played it for him and he liked it. And the only thing he said, it was right before the recording with, it was with Houston symphony and Eschenbach. And he said, uh, listen, uh, you sound fine. It'll be great. Just tell the triangle player, in the third movement that he'd better be in, uh, in rhythm. His, uh, I cannot listen to the Vienna Philharmonic recording because the triangle pl player is off, oh, no. gets derailed in the third movement. So <laughs> that's the only thing he told me about his, his, his first concerto. Um, and then I started playing that a lot. And that's when I realized I wanted him to write the uh, American Four Seasons. And, and that was a much closer collaboration because we, uh, he was amazing. He he would send me snippets and you know the MIDI recordings of, uh, of of the pieces, and then he he gave me a gift. He gave me four uh, introduct solo introductions to each season that could also be 
strung together as a as an eleven minute piece uh, for solo violin. So each season has an introduction. So he, it was so kind of him to do that. Uh, so that yeah, I'm I, I yeah he knows about all those all those knock knock jokes too, and he I think he has all the Philip Glass jokes on his web website. He's, That's awesome. He's in uh, the joke. Something a specific word you mentioned is the vulnerability when you were talking about the barber violin concert. I feel I feel like that word vulnerability has something to do with that American spirit, American dream, the vulnerability of trying to pursue a dream or someone who immigrated to this country. I mean, I can relate because my parents immigrated from Europe and I'm second generation. So there's this vulnerability of like, okay, I'm going into open waters. I have no idea what to do, but I'm gonna give it my best. And that's why I kind of mentioned the Korngold Violin Concerto because you have this um, you have this open space in the first movement that is just optimistic. You have this optimism. And then the second movement, you, you are just completely in love with this idea of the American dream. But then now you're like, you got to hustle with the third movement. It's so difficult. And then you, you're like, I, I feel like that third movement of the corn gold just lifts my spirit up. There's like, okay, I just want to go out and do something. I want to go work. Right. And that's something that I've also kind of contributed to that, to that concerto. Cause I love the corn gold as well. And the barber, um, I don't know if it has that same effect in terms of the third movement with the optimistic, I think, Everyone in the audience and the and the orchestra feels very stressed. I know I'm, you know, as an orchestra member, I was playing in the orchestra um, when a colleague of mine was playing that as solo. But, but I want to transition into your your role as a teacher. Can you share with us your the center for the strings, the McDuffie Center for the Strings in Georgia, how that came about, and and the students that are involved and in participating in this program? Absolutely. Just one quick thing about the third movement of Barber before we go on. Uh, he didn't want to talk. He said, don't ask me about the third movement. I don't even remember. <laughs> well, it, it, it sounds like that. Let's, let's be honest. It sounds like that. Yeah. I mean, he said, I was, I just tried to make it as hard as possible. And, and anybody that tries to find any correlation from uh, between the third movement and the first two movements is, is, is um, just making stuff up because there's none. And, um, and it's just, you know, he said, I tried to make it as hard as possible. I don't remember writing it. Don't ask me about it. Do you say that to your students when they want to try Barber Concerto? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, they can ask me about it, but I, they do enjoy the story. With the students, it's just the, I just play play that up. It's just, it's become very obnoxious. You know, it's just like, well, when I knew Barber. You know, they <laughs> back, in eyes. Uh, back in my day. Back in my day when there was no electricity, you know. Um, yeah, they they love that. I I try to play that. I try to be as obnoxious as I can uh, when I talk about knowing Bernstein and and Barber and those guys. Um, yeah, um, I love to I love to teach. I uh, I don't teach regularly. I teach um, privately. Um, my private lessons down at the school are um, once a month. Um, but the center, the center for strings, uh, that idea came when the uh, former president of Mercer University in my hometown of Macon, Georgia, uh, came up to New York to have lunch with me and asked. This was um, almost twenty years ago, and asked if I would be interested in um, not moving to Macon, but becoming. Uh, uh, you know, they gave me some title, like distinguished university professor or something. And, uh, and, and he said, um, just to put Mercer and Macon on the map. And that was it. That was his, that was his, um, his, his edict, his, you know, he ordered me to put Macon and Mercer on the map. So, you know, I, my parents still live down there and I have a sister down there and I, I you know, dear friends. And so I start I started making some visits and realized, uh, that it was, I didn't know didn't know what to do for the first couple of years. It was a music department, um, and uh, the, the, it, it was it was a typical smaller university music department. But they were thinking about uh, uh, creating a, a school of music. I think that's why they wanted me to uh, to be part of it. But I still didn't. I, I didn't want to just. Um, you know, follow the same the same tired formula of of of, of schools and music and universities in in America. 
so it took a couple of years to come up with the idea of creating um, a conservatory within the university uh, for strings only. And, um, and I always envisioned 26 to 27 students to form a nucleus for a, for a nice chamber size orchestra. Um, I was going to think about winds, brass and percussion wait, you know, down, down the road. Uh, but I, but I knew that I could probably produce a really high level, uh, string conservatory if we had the right faculty, uh, the right teachers. Um, so I, I kind of got out my virtual Rolodex and contacted all my famous friends and asked if, uh, and told them what I was thinking about doing. And they all, um, bought into it. And all these years later, uh, there are 13 of us, only our director, Amy Schwartz Moretti, who's a pretty amazing violinist. Only our director lives in Macon. She's, she has to be there to run the school. Um, but we have everyone from the violist of the Emerson string quartet to the concert master of the Philadelphia orchestra, principal viola of Minnesota, principal cello of St. Paul chamber. I mean, it's Richard Aaron, the great cello teacher. We have, um, yeah, we have some amazing, <laughs> some amazing teachers who come to Georgia on a revolving door basis. And every time a student turns around, one of us is on campus and they not only have one primary teacher, they have 13 mentors that they, that they tap into in this tough environment that we're in. Uh, we're not only their teachers, we're their de facto managers. We, if, if, if we feel someone deserves to be heard, uh, then we will call our, our famous conductor friends or our famous uh, presenters and, and make sure that they are, they're known It's kind of a, a hybrid approach to um, uh, to what is is has to be a hybrid career now for the 21st century classical musician. Um, so we got the music thing done. I mean, the majority of our students, it's an undergraduate program. I think uh, we now represent, we have seven countries and 13 states uh, who have come to Macon, Georgia to realize the potential. Each student is on a full tuition scholarship. And we have uh, several who are on full ride scholarships as well. It's an undergraduate program with a few artist diploma candidates uh, who come to us right before they head out into their own career. The majority of our graduates end up at Juilliard, Yale, New England, Northwestern, Curtis. Um, the, the music part ended up working the way I saw it. We have really talented students, but uh, but we don't need another conservatory. America doesn't need another conservatory. America doesn't need another school of music. So why in the world, you know, this was just kind of a, yeah. So the president wanted me to put the university on the map of what's going to be meaningful and relevant. So we changed the curriculum. We offered a new degree. That's the only, only degree in the country. It's a bachelor of music with electives in business. It's a hybrid music, liberal arts and business degree. Our students um, obviously take the, the, uh, the courses that they need to in music. There's obviously the theory and the, the ear training and secondary piano. I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of secondary piano. I, I think if you can't play piano by the time you get into college, you're never going to play the piano. But anyway, um, that's okay. There's a little less music history now, so we can add more liberal arts and business. Every student has to take math, accounting, e econ, uh, professional branding, entrepreneurship, contract law, dispute resolution, because I, my own king for a day wish is that the music world turn into a self-governing world where musicians assume managerial responsibilities and determine their own happiness and not depend on anyone else for their uh, artistic happiness or, or um, financial uh, security. Um, now I feel like we're doing something meaningful and that's what we're doing. And uh, and it's working. We're we're graduating our first uh, our first class. It took many years to get this degree uh, in. We have the accreditation folks, the certifiers, who had to approve it. They did. It took a long time. The trustees of the university had to approve it, and um, and the students come because they want to get better, and they know the teachers are great. They come for the teachers, and um, and now the reputation of the school. They don't immediately buy into the degree, but they're required to take it. So tough. And because we, we actually, uh, we feel that we know better.
that sounds really obnoxious, but we're all out there on the front lines of classical music. Well, something that I, I, I love what you're doing, and I resonate with a lot of what you're saying, Robert, because I wish that I had some entrepreneurial business classes when I was in conservatory. And at this, I guess it's a blessing in disguise that I, you know, the, the audience of the Violent Podcast know this, that I was really interested in becoming an orchestral musician. I practiced my excerpts. I did what the traditional classical music musician should have done. I practiced my Mendelssohn scares and my Don Juan Strauss. But I took an audition with Utah Symphony and I didn't pass the first round. And I go, man, I don't know if I'm going to be happy for the next 10 years of my life if I do this. And I go, okay, well, I'm going to pivot and I want to try something different. I want to try something new. So I go the entrepreneurial route. I go towards personal branding and social media and the Violin Podcast and the YouTube channel that I have, which, uh, by the way, for all the Violin Podcast listeners, you know, Violin Tutorials in the podcast show notes. At the same time, though, I think, I guess your program is the first that I've heard of that is trying to implement the business aspect, which I think is incredibly smart. And what you said about pursuing your own happiness, I think what you're kind of implying is that not having to rely on grant funding and nonprofit organizations to determine what kind of funding you deserve. You just like, okay, you know how to run the business or run the business as an LLC or a sole proprietor or whatever. Right. And of course, this isn't a business podcast. This uh, is a violin podcast. So don't take anything what I say per, um, as like advice for business. But this is just something that I've noticed in my career path that it is important to know all of this. All these music businesses in the classical music world, you know, these schools are also a business. They have to promote and they have to recruit students and all that stuff. But what I really enjoy the fact that it's a full ride for your students. I think that's important because we don't have too many programs like that in the in the US. Maybe just a handful that I can think of, Curtis and Colburn, I guess yours for undergrad. But otherwise I don't I don't know of too many that when you go in, it's automatic. So awesome. That, that's an accomplishment right there. Well, that was essential. I mean, if, if we were creating something out of thin air, that was essential for us to have the, that support from the university, those, those 27 scholarships. I mean, that was, we, we wouldn't have done it if we didn't have those scholarships. That, that was just mm-hmm. a, kind of a no-brainer. Um, there are some very good... Um, music collectives out there that are self-governing. They're smaller, you know, it's like uh, the Knights, uh, Brooklyn Rider, uh, Silk right. Road, Orpheus. Um, they, they're happy, you know, uh, the happiest orchestra on the planet is the Vienna Philharmonic. I mean, they, they, the president of the Vienna Philharmonic is in the violin section. Actually, he's speaking to my entrepreneurship class uh, this semester um, about, about what makes uh, the Vienna Philharmonic tick. Uh, because most conservatory students, uh, string students, pro- most, most look at orchestras um, as, as a viable way to make a living. So um, I, I, I use the orchestra example uh, when, I, when I speak about musicians uh, having more say in how their own uh, artistic dreams are, are realized. And, um, uh, and I, I, I look at the, I look at the business model of, of the American symphony orchestra, where you have the board members at the top and the, then you have the administrators and then you have the, you know, rank know. and file employees, you know, the musicians who have allowed themselves to be rank and file employees because that's, it's the only, they think that's what they're supposed to be. Um, my entrepreneurship class has a has a final exam where people have to ask for money. Um, it's kind of a shark tank. They go to a local a business person in the community and ask ask for for money for something they believe in. And if they don't do well, they don't get the funds. Um, board members in in these nonprofit uh, performing arts organizations are the good guys. We have to the board members don't get paid to sit on that board. They give a ton of money. Uh, because they want beauty in their community. Board members are the good guys. Musicians are the good guys. Board and musicians need to be equal partners in governance in the American Symphony Orchestra business model. Uh, 
I that um, you mentioned that you had uh, the concert master of Philadelphia Orchestra, David Kim, and I had the pleasure of speaking with David Kim and collaborating with him many years ago. And that's something that he said is he he is he is the voice of the musicians on the board when board meetings happen. And I think that goes to show how successful Philly has been in governing their orchestra. I mean, also he's just a wonderful and amazing human being and just an amazing violinist as well. But I feel like more American orchestras can kind of follow that model just to collaborate, the collaboration as opposed to politics. And well, he's a remarkable human being and, uh, and you're right. He is a great leader. And what he does uh, at our school, I mean, it's he focuses on orchestral rep. He holds mock auditions every time he's in Macon. Um, he, he is remarkable. I would like to I would like for the Philadelphia Orchestra and others to to go even further uh, than than they are now, instead of just having a token musician on the board. Um, not that there's anything token about David Kim. He's he's. He is remarkable, but just the whole just the whole uh, model to be turned upside down, um, and that that's kind of my king for a day. And and we have patronage and philanthropy uh, issues um, that um, that give us uh, that, that make it more prohibitive here in America, uh, where uh, an orchestra like the Vienna Philharmonic. Um, you know, is already a famous opera orchestra, and so they have the they they, they have the space and the and, and the opportunity to create their own onstage uh, you know philharmonic. But on the other hand, you got the president of the Vienna Philharmonic in the violin section. So I also tell my students, I want you to get into the New York Philharmonic, but I also want you to be president of the New York Philharmonic one day. I mean, I I just I don't know how it's all going to shake out. I just want my students to be ready, and if it's not going to be in the American symphony orchestra world uh, in my lifetime um at least they can create their own opportunities with their own you know with their own music collectives great i would love to completely pivot and change directions and talk about we, we talked about teaching but i want to talk about your approach to teaching um are you more of a, a technical person do you are you really into you know having all the students do scales and arpeggios or you're just like forget about that i expect you to do that on your own and you're a big picture repertoire person how, how do you approach your stu- um your students that way well at the center we have three violin teachers everyone has three teachers uh, amy moretti who's the primary teacher teaches three lessons a month david kim and i split the fourth lesson uh per month David focuses more on, he'll hear the repertoire, but he'll throw in the orchestral excerpts. So Amy is the one who sees them three times a month and, and spends more time on, on technique uh, etudes. Um, I've, I've, I've been giving master classes. I don't know. Can we say yeah. master classes anymore? I've, I've been giving classes um, at the Aspen Festival for the past you know 30 years. I love that. And I, I really just pour myself into it. Um, I think if I poured myself like that and, and, you know, 12, 12 hours a week with 12 students, I think I'd just, you know, <laughs> just keel over and, and, and just die. I mean, was, you know, the, a great teacher knows uh, how to pace, you know, their own lives as well as the lessons. I just let it all out. Um, so it's a good thing that, uh, they only see me once a month. Um, and it, and it is more and I give a center-wide uh, class. I, I listen to other disciplines as well. I'll hear the violist and the cellist and the double bass players as well. Um, so to your point, to your question, no, I'm not the, uh, um, the nitty gritty uh, dental hygienist. Uh, you know. <laughs> um, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that, that's a great way to put about it. You know, like the, the little fine, you know, flossing here and there to avoid those cavities. And then you're the one that shapes the overall smile of the student. Yeah, I do the little check. Uh, but I think, yeah, I'll do some major surgery if I, if I have to. You know, if I need to do a root canal, I'll do it. This is, by the way, not literally, folks. Not literally. It's metaphorically speaking. <laughs> well, let me see. What would, be, what would be a root canal piece? Uh, a piece that I hate that people play. I'm, I'm, Hopefully I'll get it. I'll think of one before we finish. Anyway, so I do want to mention, so we're, that, that's kind of it. So I, down at the center, the primary violin teacher is Amy Moretti, who is very close with James Ennis, is in his string quartet. Um, she's an amazing fiddle player. 
uh, and she's been running my running that school for you know uh, since she came uh, to Macon. And David Kim and I uh, are the two other teachers on the viola side. It's it's Becca Albers and Vicky Chang, um, both well known um, players and pedagogues. Cellist uh, Leo Singer, Julie Albers, and Richard Aaron. Uh, bass is Daniel Toski from the Atlanta Symphony and Jeffrey Turner, longtime principal bass of Pittsburgh, now teaching in Indiana and comes and uh, helps with us and also prepares uh, the orchestra. I just I do want to mention our, our orchestra that's also uh, the first of its kind, uh, only because it's it's so string centric. Um, our string players deserve to play the great orchestral repertoire, right? So uh, Mercer doesn't have the a winds, brass, and percussion for us, and uh, I didn't really just want to just hire ringers, uh, freelance ringers from around the state. Um, so I went to my friends at the Atlanta Symphony to the principal wind, brass, and percussion players to become mentors at my school, and they all agreed. And now the new orchestra is the the McDuffie Center string players plus alumni who are often we have alumni in San Francisco Symphony and Houston Symphony and all around the country who come four times a year to flesh out the string. So we have 35 string players and then we have the principal wind, wow. brass and percussion of the Atlanta Symphony to create this kick ass Uber orchestra in my hometown of Macon, Georgia. And uh, and that makes me happy. You know, and I can I can hear the excitement and happiness in you because what you've built, what your entire faculty has built is just an amazing community. I took a look at the website. I, all I see is just happy concert goers. I never see any frowny faces. Sometimes um, um, sometimes you go to concerts and everyone's so serious, but that's not the whole point of music. Music is supposed to be enjoyable and not supposed to be um, too serious. I mean, there is serious music out there, but also for the pleasure. Oh, just, story, we don't right? want to punish. We certainly don't want to punish an audience. And um, yeah, and we don't. We don't. We don't do that. Well, Robert, I definitely um, overstate my welcome in this conversation, but I do want to end on. I just want to end with one question: If you're, if there is any kind of advice for the pre-professional professional violinist out there who's listening to this podcast, or uh, for the concert goer who's just interested in violin, what, what do you have to say to them? Um, the floor is yours. Oh, so so advice to the pre-professional? Pre-professional or uh, professional violinist. You know, if you were to give okay, well, career advice, violinistic advice, let's anything. Start, let's start there. Um, just don't shy away from your from your goals and your dreams, uh, but, but make sure you're informed enough to realize those goals and those dreams uh whatever that may be if you're if you're if you're not in university yet and if you're really good you can audition at the mcduffie center for strings and and we'll we'll show you how to get there um and if you're professional yeah just just have more of a say in, in how your organization is is run just uh get involved get involved with your uh because I mean, it's it's your it's your town, it's your it's your orchestra, it's your group, it's your it's your ensemble. Um, just uh, yeah, just just dive in to the audience goer. It really depends. Yeah, I mean, um, everybody everybody has different reasons for going to a concert. I I uh, I fell in love with my wife when I realized that when she first moved to New York, she went to concerts. She took a, the basic classical music. She's a she's a she's a literary publicist, but she loved music because in university she took just she took a music appreciation course. She didn't know who was playing. She didn't care who the artist was. It's, it was all about the music for her. She would go to the Carnegie Hall to hear the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto because that was her favorite violin concerto. I said, "Well, who was playing?" She said, "I don't know." I went, "What?" <laughs> I mean. What you don't even know who's playing, um, and in a way that freed her up to uh, to 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 enjoy um, that masterpiece, and um, and and in a way, wouldn't that be nice if we if if everybody went to concerts that way? Because it really is about the creator. I mean, I certainly I was this cocky Juilliard kid. I realized my role right after I played for Samuel Barber. It's really not about me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an interpreter of great art. 
And, um, but, you know, the American marketing model, you know, has to make sure you have a, you know, a good headshot and you have a good, <laughs> you've been on TV and you have recordings and things. So um, it's about the music. It really is about the music. So uh, be curious about the music uh, that, that you, uh, you know, that, that, that you listen to. And um, I would go more for the music than the performer. Excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can hear Robert McDuffie with the Czech National Symphony and Carnegie Hall in February. So definitely, um, definitely get tickets to that because the Brahms Violin Concerto is one of the most gargantuan violin concertos that you can listen to, but also just an amazing piece of music art. So uh, Robert, such a pleasure to speak with you. I'm glad I made a new friend and I'll leave links in the the podcast show notes for everything Carnegie Hall related and for your tour. So thanks again for coming Fantastic. on. Really enjoyed meeting you, Eric. Thank you so Thank much. You.